Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, my colleagues, Adam Tyner and Meredith Coffey, join us to discuss their new Think Again paper on equity grading. Then on the Research Minute, Amber reports on a new study investigating whether extreme temperatures affect student performance on standardized tests. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. Yeah, and all the kids in Minnesota really are above average, right? (laughs) What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guests for this week, Adam Tyner and Meredith Coffey. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Mike. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, we've got a doubleheader from the Fordham Institute here today. Adam is the National Research Director at the Fordham Institute, where Meredith is a Senior Research Associate. We are excited to talk about a new white paper that they have out this week. We've been calling these white papers Think Again. This is our Think Again series when we think there's conventional wisdom uh, that needs questioning. But before we get to that, let us welcome in one more Fordham Institute staffer, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. It's always a pleasure. It's always great to have you here. So, folks, we are here to talk about one of my favorite topics, something we have been talking about quite a bit on the show, that is grading. It's one of these things, it's, it's kind of amazing, I have to think about. And in, in much of my career in education policy, from the late 90s into the 2000s and 2010s, I feel like we went years and never talked about this, about this, about like how kids... Uh, papers and tests and assignments get graded. And it makes me feel silly because, of course, this is the sort of stuff that really matters in the real world. Uh, If you want to improve student achievement, you got to pay attention to stuff like this. And so uh, paying attention to it, we are. So let's talk about grading for equity on education reform update. So you've got a new white paper out. It's called Think Again Does Equitable grading benefit students. So let's first start with this. Meredith, if you were going to make the case for equitable grading uh, as the pro-grading reform folks make it, what what is that case? I mean, I guess you should start by saying what is it uh, and then what is the argument for it? Yeah, absolutely. So equitable grading policies take a lot of different forms, as Adam and I get into in the paper. Probably most notorious, I would say, these days is the 50% rule. We've been hearing a lot about that. And that is also called minimum grading. And that's the idea that a student cannot get below 50% of possible points on any assignment, regardless of, in many cases, regardless of whether they turned it in or made a decent effort at the assignment. Other equitable grading policies include bans on grading homework, class participation, um, having grade components like that. Um, And then there are also reforms to grading scales. So some reforms that have been popular have been shifting away from the zero to 100 scale entirely and maybe using a zero to four scale or uh, mastery grading, also sometimes called standards-based grading. Um, so there's a whole host of policies that fall under that umbrella. Okay, so what are folks trying to do with these reforms? What's the argument for these things? 
Yeah, absolutely. And the idea is that historically, there has been a lot of um, bias and unfair practices that have shaped grading. Um, And that is absolutely true, right? I think we can all speak to a time that we had no idea how a certain assignment was going to be grading. We didn't know why we got the grade that we got on a particular assignment. Um, Teachers historically have not always been clear about expectations or what the criteria for a certain assignment. And that is particularly um, unfair and unreasonable for students who, for example, maybe their parents haven't been through the U.S. education system. They aren't familiar with these unspoken rules about what is expected in academic writing or how to behave in a classroom. So certainly it is a a reaction to that um, and to other inequities that exist in our society. For example, thinking about the the 50% rule. One way it's been explained to me is if we imagine a student who has some sort of crisis at home, maybe um, like a health issue or a challenge with a family member, and that student can't complete an assignment, and that student gets a zero. Um, and the next time the student who is very high achieving and very capable, the next time the student works really hard, and that student gets an 100 that time, but they average out to a 50, right? And that's still not passing. That's not truly showing what that student is capable of. And so the argument is that if we gave, if we compared an A to an F, the midway point of that is a C. And so the the advocates of equity grading would say, we need to, if we're going to keep the zero to 100 scale, we need to make it more representative or more fair in terms of demonstrating what the student is really capable of and addressing what happens, a phrase that's used a lot is intermittent catastrophic failures. Um, So just addressing those times that a student just really isn't capable um, or is really limited in their ability to complete a certain task, just minimizing the the impacts of those intermittent um, types of problems. All right. That's that's really well said. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, my sense is a lot of this is particularly with concern for lower achieving students who disproportionately tend to be low income uh, or kids of color, right? If you get a zero on an assignment, a big assignment or a big test, especially, you know, it might say, look, at that point, you've got no chance of getting a passing grade in the class. So you just give up. Or if you're having a hard time doing homework because you live in a small apartment with lots of siblings or don't have internet access at home. So you keep getting zeros on your homework and then that, you know, drags down your grade, whereas your more affluent peer, you know, doesn't face those same challenges. And, and so they've got the homework scores that are boosting their grades. Yeah, that, that you know, that there's, I, I can see where this argument comes from. However, it does sound like uh, akin to the, the soft bigotry of low expectations, right? It, it does seem like we're saying let's, Go easier on the kids. Uh, so, Adam, is is that your main concern with this? What's the problem with the grading for equity and equitable grading reform stuff? Right. I think that it relates closely to your your concern about the soft bigotry of low expectations. That cliche uh, that I think a lot of people have taken to mean that we need to you know be really encouraging and tell every student that they can do it and call them scholars when they're in kindergarten that that's going to set high expectations for them but i think that kids are generally more savvy than that and they realize that 
uh, the expectations are not really just about what you say, they're about what you hold students accountable for. And so if students are held to a high standard and held accountable for high performance, that is what's communicating the high expectations. And while uh, it absolutely makes sense for a teacher to see a student who's having a crisis and, you know, a family crisis or, you know, some kind of a, they're dealing with homelessness or and find you know a particular set of circumstances and to carve out something for that student when you try to rationalize that throughout the education system you try to make top down policy that's based on that kind of an idea you, what you're doing is just kind of lowering the bar in general and so while I, Meredith and I try to communicate throughout the the brief that it, you know this is not about saying that you know no grading reform could ever be you know worthwhile or that you know teachers always have to be hard on every student in every circumstance um, it's, teachers need to have latitude uh, to make some of those judgment calls but we also know from the research that when teachers uh, hold students more rigorously accountable, more strictly accountable through stricter grading, like we saw with our research with Seth Gershenson a few years ago, students learn more. There's accumulating evidence on that, uh, that students learn more when they're subjected to stricter grading standards. And so that's a part of the uh, the grading reform conversation. That's a part, a part of that story that hasn't been told really. Nobody's really been pushing back on any of this as it's been accumulating. We've been hearing more and more districts doing this over the last uh, couple of years. And so that's what we wanted to do with this brief was to bring some of that research out to say, you know, that when it does mean more leniency, uh, that's not really going to do these kids favors in the long run. And, you know, look, somebody like, say, Joe Feldman, who's a, a proponent of equity grading, he's got a uh, he's been going back and forth a little bit with Rick Hess over on his blog post recently. And, you know, Joe says, look, this is actually a way to make grading more rigorous. So, for example, if you're not including homework grades or discussion grades in the final grade, uh, you know, that's a little bit, those are things are kind of soft. Uh, and so you're getting closer to a grade that really reflects real achievement, you know, and so those sort of affluent grade grubbers <laughs> can't just find ways to inflate their grades. They have to actually demonstrate that they know something about the material. I, I think that's pretty compelling. And he'd also say, look, if, if you, for example, allow kids to retake tests or redo essays or assignments, which is a big part of this as well, you know, that reflects a growth mindset. We want kids to, you know, keep learning. We want, want them to give up. And so, you know, what's wrong with that? And, and Again, it sounds great, except I can tell you from evidence from my two children, uh, you know, kids are not stupid and they figure out that they can game the system. If, if the test, if there's always retakes, then why study for a test? Take a crack at seeing if you ace it. And if you bomb it, then you'll study and redo it. Or, you know, why turn on the turn in the assignment on time? And, and you know, if, if there's somebody out there who wants to quote Alfie Cohn as saying, well, you know, children have an intrinsic love of learning. I would uh, like that person to go spend some time with teenagers. David, what's your thought on this? I have lots of thoughts and none of them are positive, Mike. I really hate this. I hate the way it's being pushed. I hate the fact that it's being elevated to the level of policy, um, which just strikes me as completely insane. Yes, when I was a teacher, I occasionally gave kids who were in tough circumstances a mulligan. I did. That's common sense. We all, you know, have a need to, to balance justice with mercy. But the notion that this that's, you know, there's one right way to grade. 
that should be elevated all the way to the level of district policy or even, frankly, in my opinion, school policy, or even that a particular teacher should take exactly the same approach throughout a semester, right, with the same kid is just bizarre to me. Uh, it, it really is. Where do we get the notion that grading is fair? Grading is not fair, okay? We, we have thousands of teachers. They all set different standards. Grading is not fair. Get over it. Uh, you know, it is, it is, you get a different grade for the same work, depending on one sc which school you go to, which class you're into, whatever. Grading is a motivational tool. That's what it's for. It's not, it's not to produce some, some sort of perfectly fair whatever. And so uh, it, it just, it, it, it bothers me deeply that yet again, we're, we're taking this very narrow notion of fairness, which I'm not even sure is well-defined and, and suggesting that it, 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 it means we need to, that put a straight jacket around every teacher in the entire country. It's not realistic and it's damaging. Wow, David, life is unfair. I, he, you're sounding like a conservative now. I love it. Uh, however, and I know it's not exactly what you said. Uh, it's but, not that well. It does though. It brings out my Burkean like sort of conservative, which is my favorite strand of conservatism. I mean, not everything needs to be centralized. Okay, but 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 there is this concern about racial bias, right? And some evidence that over the years there has been, right? That that this is, you know, that the teacher looks and sees the name of the student before they grade the essay and, you know, has some kind of, there's some implicit bias baked in and, and the black student gets a lower grade for the exact same essay as the white student under some of these, you know, research conditions. So, I mean, Meredith, like what, what are some of the ideas to deal with that kind of bias? Because that seems like, you know, especially if it's a high stakes thing, it may, you know, you know, maybe we're talking about little assignment, but you know, some big assignment or grades that are actually maybe going to have an impact on what college you get into. We do need to worry about that kind of bias, right? Yeah, absolutely, and that is that can be very real. But there are there are absolutely ways to combat that within you know modified versions of our traditional grading system. You know, when. One tool that Adam and I talk a lot about in the paper is scoring rubrics, which are used much more now than they were in the past. But I, like as a former teacher myself, I'm a huge fan of scoring rubrics. You can present them to the students before you give the assignment so they know what is expected of them. They know what the grading criteria are. Um, everyone can be on the same page. Frankly, as a teacher, it makes the grading go a lot faster when you have that rubric. And finally, students know, all right, well, next time I need to include more evidence in my essay. Or, you know, next time I need to make sure I proofread um, and get rid of those grammatical and mechanical errors. So they're also getting very clear feedback. Um, so rubrics really can reduce bias. Um, other strategies uh, Adam and I talk about, for example, you can do what's called blind scoring, which is honestly easier than ever with grading online grading platforms that most, if not all teachers use anymore. So for example, you can have students all submit their assignment through Canvas or Schoology or Google Classroom or what have you. Um, and then the tool can present you with their assignments so that you don't have to see as the teacher who it is that submitted which assignment. Um, so you are just grading according to the work that you're seeing without the student's name or what you know about that student um, in the back of your head. And of course, you can also do anonymized grading, right? Like in many schools, there are multiple teachers who might be teaching 10th grade standard English or algebra one or what have you, right? And you can just swap 
assignments and grade for each other. So you don't know those students. You're not coming in um, with those biases, which might be, you know, about anything from the student's appearance to whether or not they sit in the front row and raise their hands during class, right? Like we don't want any of those things to inform the ways that students are being graded if that's not a part of the task. Um, But there are ways to to sidestep those types of of biases um, and preconceived notions. Real quick, David, that that those kinds of reforms, those okay with you? Yeah, of course, you should try to be fair, you know, like when you when you, you, you know, are grading your assignments, and you should try to give your kids the same score, regardless of what color they are. But I, I just the notion that we would standardize this across every classroom in America is just, uh, it's not realistic. And it probably won't have the intended consequences either. All right, we will leave it there. Please do check out this great white paper by Adam Tyner and Meredith Coffey. Adam, Meredith, thanks so much for joining us. Look forward to having you back on the show sometime soon. See you next time, Mike. So much. All right, now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Uh, you giving up anything for Lent this year, Amber? Is that something you do? Uh, I don't typically know. Uh, anything I'd want to give up would just be, I don't know. I always think sugar, but I mean, let's just be real. Who can really give up sugar? <laughs> That's a good one, though. I mean, uh, you'd have to be very clear in what you define it by. Like natural sugars would be okay. Yeah. Uh, right. Like so you can eat fruit. Yeah. A lot of fruit. And then one year when I was trying to just eat less sugar, I was mixing like stevia in with everything. Like, but stevia is like, that's kind of sugar. You know, I don't know. I feel like we're always trying to get around it when you lessen sugar. You always just substitute another kind of sugar. I mean, I used, you know, I, I remember as a kid trying to come up with something to give up for Lent. And it was it was always like, OK, you want to come up with something that sounds good, but isn't too hard, right? <laughs> so it's like, well, I haven't really been eating any candy anyway since <laughs> Halloween. So I'll say I'll just give up candy because right. I don't have any candy in my house anyway. Right. It's easy. Probably wasn't the spirit of it, though, was it? No, it, it's it's not. But that's kind of what it turns to into, unfortunately. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, yeah. So Research Minute, what you got for us? Uh, we have a new study It examines uh, not the effects of candy, uh, but of the weather on student test performance. Weather. I love talking about the weather. The weather, yes. Um, It's an understudied topic, Mike. Uh, I think maybe I've covered one weather study um, in the past. But there's a small literature on how exposure to things like pollution and wildfire smoke and other weather conditions affect testing. Uh, A lot of increased concerns about changes in the climate. So more scholars are starting to pay attention to this topic. Uh, the studies by Devin Carlson, one of our EAPs, our friend, uh, and Adam Shepherdson, and they look at the climate in one locale, Tulsa, Oklahoma, to determine the effects of temperature on student learning via the map reading and map math test across a six-year period on both the day of testing and longer term. Uh, And by that, they mean the 90-day average temperature leading up to these various testing dates. So they're looking both at the day of and the 90 days before average. The MAP is administered three times a year uh, during our 2014, 15, and 2019, 20 school years, which is their study period. Uh, It's administered in the fall, September, in the winter, January, and in the spring, which is May. 
So they have 18 observations for each student across different seasons and temperatures. And they say that, you know, Tulsa is a really great place to do this because it has highly variable weather within and across seasons, although it tends to have long, hot summers and milder winters. So they combined, oh, this is a lot. They combined student level map data by test administration, including demographic data about the school and student, as well as their zip code of residents used to connect students to the weather conditions they're experiencing. That part was a little confusing, just side note, because I thought they'd be tracking the school's weather for the test day analysis. And it's not entirely clear to me that they did do that. But anyhow, perhaps Devin will, will help us out there. We're just talking about Tulsa, right? I mean, it Tulsa, that's the weather it. varies that dramatically across the city of Tulsa. It apparently does, Mike. <laughs> Too bad we don't have Adam on. He could, um, you know, he could let us know. Um, they merged those um, data, the, the you know, residential data and the weather conditions uh, by weather station in Tulsa. So they have apparently 18 different weather stations in Tulsa. So they calculate a single daily value based on the five minute incremental observations that are taken at each station over the course of the study period. They map those data on student level zip codes by map testing dates. Descriptive data <laughs> show that there's great variability, especially in winter, where kids can test on days with weather in the 20s or well into the 60s. Oh, now I get it. Okay. The days are different. The testing days are different. There it's you not go. That on the same day, the weather is different on the east side of Tulsa than on the west there side. There it's that go. the test window is a few weeks long and therefore got it. Okay. Yes. Uh, their OLS methods account for variation in map testing dates since they change somewhat every year as well as students' performance on the prior map and the number of days since that administration so that, you know, because some kids are getting more instruction than others. So they're estimating the effect of weather on the change in students' map percentile from one administration to the next. That's what their estimate is. All right, key finding, test day temperatures have no significant effect on map performance in the fall or winter but they have a clear but small negative effect on math, particularly in the spring. So achievement in math performance declines by three percentiles from the 44th to the 41st as they move along the distribution where the average test day's temperatures move from about 50 to 80 degrees. So it's small, but still meaningful. Uh, they reason that there's no uh, perhaps impact on the fall because, okay, this is just um, no significant impact, right? It just appeared uh, in the spring. And they're saying, well, kids probably, you know, they got like three months of hot temperatures by then. You know, they've been, this is the summer before they've been tested and maybe they've adapt to the heat better. So that's an hypothesis. And then they look at the terms um, leading up to 90 days. To testing. So that was test day temperatures. Then they look at 90 days and see if that made a difference. Uh, they find that the summer temperatures have a significant effect on the fall map assessment, but it's positive. So the average student performance in math increases three percentiles as kids move from cooler to hotter temperatures 
And that impact is slightly higher in reading. And then they're like, okay, what's going on here? Maybe kids are spending more time indoors during the hot summer. And maybe if they're doing good things, engaging in the right types of activities. <laughs> I don't think they're reading books at home, but I don't know. We can talk about that. God bless them if they are. <laughs> yes. You have to do books these days. There's no other form of entertainment that you can. That's it. Yeah, That's it. You're inside. Yeah. Anyway, the 90-day temperatures uh, didn't show much uh, when they looked at it by race or achievement. So not too much on the uh, heterogeneity front. And that's what I've got. Wow. Interesting. So wait, they, they do better in the fall after a hot summer. Yes. In reading. Wow. All right. I I don't know. I, I don't know. They're small. Small changes. All right. Well, this is really, no, I'm glad they're looking into this. Now I'm starting to think, you know, do we have to adjust NAEP scores by weather? Uh, does that, is that something we should be doing? I don't know. The Mississippi miracle. Is it a miracle or is it just hot down in Mississippi? <laughs> huh? I know. The mind reels, Mike. I don't know, though. It makes the Massachusetts miracle look that much more impressive. Yeah. And all the kids in Minnesota really are above average, right? Because <laughs> they've been swimming upstream. <laughs> well, that was, you know, Moynihan used to say, you know, the being contiguous to Canada seemed to be the, you know, why some places had high student achievement. Um, <laughs> it, it wasn't Canada, it was the weather. Oh, man, I know. It's it's a head scratcher. Hmm. Well, this is cool. I'm glad. Hey, I, I love it. I, anytime people are creative about combining new data sources, I like <laughs> it. So, and and yeah. I'm surprised it didn't get more attention because... I have to say, as somebody who uh, tries to be creative about how to get the press to pay attention to education research, I would think by connecting it to climate change. Climate change. I know. You'd think that would be a great hook. Yeah. So uh, good. Good. Keep at it, guys. Keep at it. It's a good thought. All right. That's all the time we got, though, I believe. So thank you, Amber. That was a good one. Yeah. But until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.